You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. This week, we're excited to have Dr. Palekia, an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, Perelman School of Medicine. She's a licensed clinical psychologist, nationally certified school psychologist, and a BCBA. Her research is focused on partnering with community stakeholders to develop feasible, sustainable, and effective implementation strategies in community settings. Dr. Palekia's most recent body of work centers around developing strategies to improve the implementation of parent coaching and successfully engaging parents of young children with autism in their child's treatment. Today, she shares her insights and expertise on the de-implementation of compliance training in autism therapy and the shift towards more individualized approaches. Welcome to the podcast, Melanie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. You know, it's my pleasure. And I think this is a topic that will be very important, not just for clinicians, but for parents and probably also for the just community at large to understand the changes that have adapted over time with the delivery of care. But before we get there, one thing that I, I always like to do is bring our audience and our, and our guests together by, by sharing the journey of what brought you into this field, this research and obviously the passion that you had for it. Sure, yeah. Um, so I've been doing this for a long time. I've been working in the ABA world and uh, in the autism intervention world for um, over 20 years. I started doing this when I was just uh, 19 or 20 years old as an undergraduate student uh, who needed some extra cash to pay rent and you know get through um, you know, the day, the day life of an undergraduate college student. And so I was fortunate to work with a professor um, at my institution who uh, had um, an interest and had uh, an agency that she did on the side providing um, applied behavior analysis therapy to children on the spectrum. And she uh, posted in class, hey, I'm hiring students who uh, might be interested in doing this on the side. So I did, and I fell in love with the work. Um, I fell in love with uh, the process of getting to know the children and the families, and I have been doing some form of that ever since. Um, I, uh, you know, obtained a full-time position uh, as an ABA therapist uh, back uh, before uh, they were called RBTs or behavior techs um, and uh, was providing home-based ABA therapy all day, every day as a full-time position, traveling uh, across uh, the city and over to, I'm in Philadelphia, so over to New Jersey. And, um, really just immerse myself in the idea of how to help families and children, uh, many of whom had really uh, challenging behavior, many of whom uh, had little to no means of communication. And it felt really empowering and wonderful to be able to support these children and families uh, to become more successful and more independent uh, throughout their daily lives. Um, I went on to get my master's in ABA and uh, become a board certified behavior analyst um, and sort of went through the ranks of becoming uh, you know, a clinical supervisor, 
Um, I started um, some publicly funded programs uh, within Philadelphia's uh, public service system to uh, deliver ABA to more families who didn't have access to ABA back at that time, you know, going back 20 years ago, it wasn't as publicly available as it is now. Uh, families often had to fight for ABA services uh, if that was what uh, they felt their child needed. And so we were part of the group that started the first publicly funded ABA programs in the city of Philadelphia to be able to improve equity and access to more families. So they didn't have to fight for it as often is what our hope was. Um, in doing that work, I realized that even though we had these publicly funded services available, there were still lots of families that needed to fight uh, to be able to access high quality care. Um, and I started to think about, well, why is that? And what could we do from a research lens, uh, from a system level perspective to, um, you know, improve service access? And went on to get my doctorate degree, um, went on to become a licensed psychologist and really like expanding my clinical view of how intervention and services should be delivered uh, from still a behavioral lens, but more now thinking about like the clinical psychology aspects of supporting and empowering families as a whole. And what are the other aspects of child development that we don't learn about in the ABA world? And how can those kinds of things be infused into uh, services and treatment. Um, and so now I um, have sort of come full circle and I uh, am very much interested in figuring out how to help publicly uh, funded service systems implement high quality um, interventions for families who are receiving publicly funded care um, through research-based projects related to implementation of these kinds of services on a larger level. And also thinking about like, what are we doing when we're supporting kids and families and how can we make sure that we're doing what is current and um, empowering and how are we listening to the voices of the all of the different shareholder groups who are involved in this? Um, so the families, the, the parents, the caregivers, the children themselves, the um, adults who once were children and went through these kinds of services. So all of that sort of uh, keeps me up and thinking about how we can improve service access. Uh, that's such an amazing journey, and uh, I guess I'll I'll just have to applaud the fact that your university back 20 years ago had that opportunity for you, because if they didn't, I think we'd be missing out on so much <laughs> that you've been able to bring to the field. Um, I'd actually like to go back, before we get into the understanding of, of compliance training, um, I'd like to go back to what your, what your training actually was and what it felt like for you 20 years ago. So it's like going back and trying to remember, oh my goodness, what is this yeah. experience? Mine was, because that was about the same timeline. And I remember sitting there and going and learning how to deliver a neutral no mm -hmm. and going through that for 30 minutes of, okay, so do you got to say it this way? No, you have too much inflection. You have, mm -hmm. and to me, that just felt so punitive in the process itself but that's what they were teaching a lot at that time was no you need to you need to be very neutral and you have to be uh, kind of incorporating a lot more of the punitive techniques that exist within our field rather than trying to modify the environment and, and really looking at individualizing how somebody learns and everything like that it seemed more curriculum based techniques were a little bit more um i i i'd almost say uh, lab light at that time, 20, 25 years ago. What yeah. was your training like at that time? 
it was similar to what you're describing, Jeff. And so, I mean, I, I, I think of it, it was very rigid. Um, and so there wasn't a lot of flexibility uh, in how you delivered instructions. And so the idea of a neutral no is certainly, um, you know, yes, we were taught, you know, say it using this tone of voice. Um, make sure that you repeat it three times. Make sure, you know, they're a very rigid scripted sort of uh, sequence to how you were delivering instruction, how you were prompting, right? So the very specific prompting hierarchy that you were uh, expected to deliver when uh, there was an incorrect response. Um, also the idea of like, what is a correct response? And um, are we, how are we shaping uh, responses and behaviors so that they are more like the target response that we want them to be. And all of that happened really slowly, happened over time uh, using mass trials and repetition. Um, it happened in very sterile kind of environments, right? And so we were working in environments that were free from distraction, um, sterile so that only the things that we were bringing into the teaching interaction were the things that were there to limit, you know, distractions. Um, no other people were around. Um, parents weren't really allowed to come into the room because that would be distracting. Um, you know, we were extinguishing behavior and letting tantrums happen so that you didn't reinforce them, you know, while keeping everyone safe and all of, all of those procedures for sure. But it was a different a different way than what I think about now in terms of how to, you know, provide instructions. We're using lots of different words and we are exposing to language rich, you know, teaching environments. So it's different for sure. Yeah. And, and I look at all that as, I mean, it, it's almost like stepping stones is that all science evolves over time. We learn from each one of these steps. And that's where yeah. I want to get into maybe just giving a, a definition of really what compliance-based learning looks like so that we can start talking about how we moved away from it. And um, a, a funny little thing is that when I was talking to our, our team, our leadership team, is that our, I was telling our general counsel, I was like, oh, we're going to be talking about de-implementation of compliance. And he's like, well, uh, so obviously is that yeah. trying to put it into context is that we're, we're not talking about compliance as far as ethical or moral or regulatory or anything like that we're talking about technique within the aba field here and uh, and especially in the way that our learners are attaching to things but maybe even give us a little bit of a background about you know what what is compliance-based learning yeah it's a good question and i don't know that there's a solid answer to this i think this is something that there's a lot of debate about um when i think about compliance training, compliance-based learning. It's the idea of having an individual comply with a directive solely for the purpose of doing that because that's what you're being taught to do, right? So there isn't necessarily like a, a meaningful or a functional reason why you're teaching that person to follow an instruction. Um, it is the idea of changing behavior for the sake of changing behavior. It is the idea of teaching uh, an individual and prompting them to follow through uh, with some sort of command uh, because that is what, you know, you are teaching them to do. And there isn't necessarily like a functional, readily apparent reason behind that. Um, I also, when we're thinking about compliance training, it's that the person doesn't necessarily have a choice in whether or not they can comply, right? Compliance is like you do it because you have to, because you are 
like there's some sort of other contingency or some sort of other thing that like you have to comply with this instruction or like potentially something aversive might happen, something that you don't like might happen or you just might feel sad, who knows, right? But the idea that you don't have choice, there isn't assent in your ability to say like, no, I don't wanna do that. Um, when I think about compliance, like in terms of the kinds of treatments I used to deliver 20 or so years ago, it's using that traditional mass trialing kind of approach, right? So uh, like the idea of uh, teaching sit down as a command, right? Like not because you want a child to learn, like when you're in a classroom, you should sit down because it's part of what is the overall classroom, you know, norm. It's sit down as the idea of like, this is an instruction that I'm going to teach this child to comply with with the frame that like I'm going to teach lots of other things like you know clap your hands and touch your nose and all of the other but and and is there function to that perhaps right it's the idea of you know learning to follow instructions which is an important thing that we all should be able to do um, but when you strip it down like the idea of is that something that is readily meaningful in that moment um these are the sorts of um, in a simple way to think through, like these are the kinds of things that are often classified as compliance training, even more so like the idea of like having to like eat foods that you don't want to eat. Um, we think about, you know, children who have very restricted feeding, um, you know, you know, very restrictive diets. Um, and so there's a balance between like health and safety and making sure that they're gaining enough nutrients versus also like, well, maybe he just doesn't really like that texture. And why are we doing that? what what is the purpose i think for me when i think about compliance training the thing at the heart of it is like who is benefiting from the goal right who is benefiting from that um is that learner actually really benefiting from that does it really matter if they eat things that are you know soft or slimy or whatever right like probably not and if so why are we focusing our efforts on that um you know I, it, it's that's a lot but that's sort of the what I think of when I think of compliance training. You know, it, it might be a lot, but that last question you asked should be the question that everybody's always asking. And that's not just in uh, the treatment of children with autism, adults with autism. Yeah. That should be like, you know, every interaction that we're having is who's, yeah. who's benefiting from this? Like, am I doing something where the value is contrived, the situation is contrived, or is there a natural inherent purpose, value? Uh, is this something that is going to enrich somebody's life? And I don't know that that question historically had been asked enough. And it, do you think that that was because it's easier for a clinician to do something that is more ah, routine, rigid, curriculum-based, uh, where you don't really have to think through what's next, but you're just teaching to a platform? Is, is that part of the reason that we fell into this? Potentially, right? I think it's a, an important question that we can probably all and only answer for ourselves. Um, I think um, I think that as like a you know a behavioral field, we are we are taught or we were certainly when I was learning this um, to change behavior. And it's so exciting that you can change someone's behavior and like you do these cool things with these antecedents and consequences and oh my goodness, now this you know behavior looks very different than it did. Um, there's this idea that I certainly was always taught was like, we're doing this because that's gonna help this individual in the long run, right? And so even though right now this, 
individual may not want to do X, Y, and Z thing, we know that learning this and complying with these activities is going to help them in the long run. And so I don't think that people, you know, who are coming into the field of working uh, with individuals with autism or other disabilities are coming at this in a way that's harm, like intending to be harmful. I think everyone's coming into this field because you want to help people. Um, and I think the idea is that um, maybe the procedures we're using aren't always as helpful as we thought that they were. Um, I think it's thinking about, you know, we're doing this because we were taught in many cases, this is the correct approach, this is the right strategy, but maybe there are other strategies that we could be using that are seen as less um, invasive or, you know, just not pleasant. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, and that makes a lot of sense. And even when, when you talk about the field in general, and you're a researcher, so I mean, you've been looking and following everything as time has gone on over the years, is that we have a history of doing replication studies and not necessarily pushing the boundaries to say, you know, where do we really need to improve more drastically? Where do we need to start looking at being able to generate more information for the field so that we can start to shape our own behavior a little bit quicker? Because, I mean, as practitioners, we want to follow what's evidence-based. And up until, I mean, I'd probably say a five, 10 years ago is that the idea of ascent, the idea of the de-implementation of some of these practices wasn't as available in the research to a lot of clinicians. I mean, what yeah. made that change? What made us start thinking that we need to start evaluating other strategies? Yeah, I think there were a, a couple of things that I see uh, sort of happening in tandem. One um, is that, um, I think that people became, so historically, I think that um, the behavioral science world was sort of separate and isolated uh, and didn't necessarily take into account the views of, you know, developmental psychology or clinical psychology, right? And so they were always these different branches of psychology and behavioral science was separate. Um, I think that, uh, you know, over the last 10, 15, 20 years, there's been more of a push to come meet in the middle. Um, and a, certainly like people like me who started off as behavior analysts and then went on to become a clinical psychologist and thinking about like, what are all of these strategies that are over here in this other kind of psychology that I didn't learn about in my uh, behavioral training? And how can we use those to, um, you know, improve the treatment strategies that we're using? That's one thing that I think shaped this change. I think another important thing that shaped this change is that many uh, individuals, uh, many autistic individuals who were receiving um, ABA treatment grew up and uh, now had their own voices. And um, many of them often spoke very loudly about their experience receiving traditional rigid compliance focused ABA therapy when they were younger. And they had strong opinions about how they didn't think that that was what should have happened. Um, and they were, you know, some of the words that are used uh, are abuse and harm and PTSD, um, conversion therapy. Like these are the words that these individuals are using to describe their experience. And I, I think that uh, we, you know, are listening to them and thinking about how we can incorporate their voices into these kinds of um, intervention models for young kids moving forward. 
and asking those questions of people who have experienced the care models historically, it's it's the only way to grow as a field and get better and get stronger. And I think that that's where I think the field has moved is is trying to say is that you know we need to be more incorporating of you know the community viewpoint. We need to be able to take each stakeholder, and the biggest stakeholder is the recipient of care into mind when we're making decisions. And I've seen this change over time. So I have a lot of hope that, you know, it continues to move forward. And some of those perceptions, even of, of the um, advocacy, the, the self-advocates, is that they see that change as well, is that, you know, mm-hmm. they're being heard, is that yeah. they are guiding and shifting our field in the way that their voice should be able to do. But what is, I mean, if you were to break down the general theme and philosophy of de-implementing compliance. You mentioned assent, but I would imagine there's a variety of pieces that have to go into the care model to really start moving away from that. What what are some of the two, three biggest things that we as clinicians need to be able to evaluate better to be able to make sure that that we're responding appropriately? Yeah, so I think, so if there were a few things that I sort of conceptualize when I'm thinking about um, de-implementing this kind of compliance-based approach, one is that I think that it's going to look different depending on the age of the individual. Uh, And so what this looks like for kids who are, you know, five, six, and younger is going to be different than what it looks like when you're working with an adolescent or an adult potentially, right? And um, and it should be the case no matter what is happening, but I do think that's an important thing to consider when we're thinking about the kinds of intervention strategies that are being used. I do think that we can think about how to de-implement uh, these traditional compliance-based approaches regardless of the individual's age. So meaning that just because someone is little doesn't mean that they don't have a say in what's happening. Um, but, but I think the the procedures are potentially going to look different. Um, Across the board, I think it's the idea of um, choice, preference, individual-led kind of intervention, right? And so for little kids, you're thinking about following the child's lead and doing things in a more play-based, naturalistic kind of way, as opposed to a rigid, structured, like you have to sit down 15 times in a discrete trial kind of session. Um, Thinking about, you know, just Thinking about whether or not that individual is a happy learner, I think, uh, is sort of a, a fuzzy way to to frame it. But I do think, you know, if we can think about more antecedent-based uh, environmental arrangement, preventive types of responses uh, that really are focused on keeping the learner motivated, engaged, happy, we're doing a good job as interventionists because you have, like, you would assume a young child who maybe is not able to verbally communicate that they want to do this if they are engaged and happy and motivated, you're you're using those signals to guide that intervention. Um, as individuals get older, I think, um, you know, depending on cognitive and verbal ability, but certainly I think it's very appropriate to have them take a, a partnership role in designing uh, what their day looks like, what, uh, what kinds of uh, goals do they want? So are there certain kinds of social goals that they find important and meaningful that they want to work on? We should be asking those questions. Um, They should be actively designing their 
intervention plans and those goals and how to work on those goals. I think that we should be taking more of a collaborative partnership approach um, as the individual gets older or as they're, you know, able to voice those kinds of um, decisions. I think we don't often ask those questions. Uh, we say, here's your treatment plan and here are your goals that we think you need to work on. Um, and I think that we should be incorporating their own views into into those plans. I also think um, for across the age group, you know, why, in terms of behavior reduction, like why are we focusing on certain kinds of behaviors for reduction? Um, there's an overwhelming, uh, you know, literature or, uh, you know, certainly a lot of information uh, about the calming and soothing aspects of some self-stimulatory behavior or stereotypy, right? And uh, we certainly shouldn't be um, thinking about reducing uh, behaviors just because they might not be socially normative. Uh, the idea of inclusion and acceptance and, you know, making sure that we're making space for different ways of being and interacting, like we don't have to change that kind of behavior. We, it's completely, it's not harmful, it's fine. Um, I think those kinds of approaches are, again, um, not always present in schools and uh, within just broader intervention plans. Yeah, and I mean, I think that as, as you're saying all this, my mind is racing. So I'm, I'm thinking about, all right, so where where can we continue to improve? And as you're describing a lot of that, and I think through you know, what some of the um, the master's programs look like right now. Mm. Um, it's a lot on technique. It's a lot on the, the analytics of the data, which is extremely valuable. And sure. we should be really learning about that. But some of the pieces that I think that we don't put enough emphasis and value on is the, the ecology, is understanding how to be able to modify and look more at the compassion, the empathy of what actually is occurring and yeah. perspective. But then also treatment planning is that treatment planning as a skill set, I feel like is left to the employer to go teach a lot of the times versus it being embedded in somebody's education model of this is one of the biggest jobs you're going to have is how do you incorporate numerous viewpoints and how do you uh, elicit feedback and how you're planning with somebody their effective yeah. treatment is is this something that i mean in the education world that we're starting to talk more about is this something that still is not really immersing itself is it does it take the the psych department in the mm. ABA department working together collaboratively more to be able to kind of work through some of these hurdles. What What is your view on some of this? Yeah, I mean, I think that there there is a lot lacking from um, course sequences, right? Um, we 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 often think about like, if so if we take something, if we add something, what are we taking away, right? So there's this tension between getting through 30 credits or whatever the number of credits you, you need to be able to complete your uh, requirements versus making sure that you are giving them all of the content that would be meaningful. And it, it, treatment planning is critical to this. I think depending on the age of the person you're working with, right? So understanding child development is critical. Um, understanding, uh, you know, family-centered care is critical. These are the kinds of things that are not included in traditional uh, 
course sequence because the reality is is that there's probably not enough room um and so should there be a specialization if you're going to work with children should there be a specialization if you're going to work with adolescents maybe um but these are i think these are bigger bigger questions related to education i do think you know in terms of education law, certainly there is, you know, if you're 14 or 13, you are supposed to be included in your IEP meetings and things like that. Um, so there is what that actually looks like in practice, though. You know, I think uh, there's a lot to be desired when uh, that actually happens. I think when we're thinking about individual treatment planning, um, there isn't a lot of guidance as to what's the best way to do this. I think it's very individual. It's based on who you learned from, who was your clinical supervisor, who did you get your supervised hours from. Um, and that varies from person to person. Unfortunately, there isn't a lot of consistency or even guidelines on how to do that. Yeah, and, and I think these are things that we're chipping away at. Um, but at the same time, like you said, it's it's trying to figure out how do you how do you balance that? Is that there's such a need out there, but if you go with 100% of your thought process being on growing uh, access to care and growing a provider base without taking a step back to realize if I rush that piece, mm -hmm. you could be tearing down the entire support system because yeah. you're not getting the right skills built in. So I think yeah. there's balance. I think it's a tough ask, but I think we're we're slowly getting to, you know, what we need to be doing. And that collaboration piece is so important on that. Um, I, I want to get back to just kind of, you know, the, the understanding of compliance versus independence. And where some of those gray areas are, because when I'm talking about safety issues and I'm talking yes. about something that could do inherent harm, I don't see compliance as a bad thing um, as yeah. long as you're balancing out by teaching how to self-advocate, how to how to assent in, in another way. But, you know, yeah. there's that immediate need. Yeah. What does that look like for you? It's such an important question because I have had uh, lots of conversations with colleagues um, at both ends of this, you know, polarizing viewpoint. Uh, people who are very traditional, uh, you know, behaviorists who say, well, if you are just doing, um, you know, child directed or person directed, like they can do whatever they want and they never learn how to follow instructions and they never learn that they have sometimes you have to wash your hands sometimes you have to transition to the next classroom and so there's not always the option for choice in real life um and fully i fully agree with that and i don't think that anyone who is providing this kind of intervention in a way that is meaningful and effective would say yes it's a free-for-all every person can just do whatever they want that's not how society operates uh, the reality is that there are rules and there are laws and there are ex like expectations. I think, yes, sometimes you have to wash your hands because your hands are dirty. Um, and so we can come up with a way, though, if washing your hands is stressful for you for some sensory kind of reason or another kind of reason, like let's come up with an alternative way for you to get your hands clean that isn't so stressful for you, right? And so it's not that you never have to wash your hands because you don't want to wash your hands. It's like maybe we can use a wipe. Maybe we can use some hand sanitizer. Like maybe we can come up with another way to get you to the point where you can wash your hands without it being aversive. But we're not going to just force you to stand at that sink in this loud, noisy, cold, whatever situation that's making you stressed out. 
Um, I think that is the difference, right? It's not that there aren't rules and there aren't things that need to happen. There certainly is a need for compliance. And the reality is if there's a safety issue, like safety, safety, like overrides those kinds of things. If somebody's going to run out into the street, yes, you have to go get them and you have to physically stop them. Um, but you're also going to do a lot of teaching about why that happened and why that was unsafe. And then you're also going to like think about how did this even happen and how can I prevent this from happening in the future? Because this was a stressful situation. So what got us to this point? How can I learn from this and prevent it from happening in the future? Those are all the kinds of things that I think are included in a you know, person-centered, child-centered kind of approach where it's not just like there are no rules. It's of course, but if this is stressful to you, I want to figure out how we can make it less stressful um, and more successful. And I mean, everything that you just said there seems to go beyond just the treatment for autism. I mean, you're talking yeah. about even in the business world is that you're you're going to go through that same process. You're going to try and figure out, you know, what's the root cause of this? What actually led to this? Or if I go and implement everything because I think this should be a rule, I've just upset everyone who I should be caring for as far as my employees. Like, yeah. so I love the, the overlap that occurs within the clinical world and mm. the business and the community world, school world, just life mm -hmm. in general. There's mm -hmm. so much overlap to what we're doing. But as, as you're, I mean, to kind of branch off that, we're trying to empower parents oftentimes with the same school. And quite frankly, parents are probably the biggest component of a successful treatment plan mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. their engagement. How is it that we're, because that's got to be a tough sell uh, at times is, mm. well, this is how you do it. I know you've learned this for years yeah. and years, but now I need to change your 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 mind on this thought process. Yeah. So how, yeah. does, how does your interaction with the parent change to get buy-in on this? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's collaboration. It's making sure that the parents have a um, equal say in what you are working on with their child. It's making sure that they, um, you know, buy into the strategies that you're using, that they have a voice and a say in the strategies that you're using, that the goals that you're working on are important to the family. Um, I sometimes think that we pick goals because we have a checklist and this is the goal that we should work on. But for that family, you know, getting out the door in the morning because mom has to go to work and they have to go to daycare or whatever the situation is, like, that's the more important goal. Um, and so what are the strategies we can include to make that routine more successful? Um, but at the end of the day, I think it's collaboration between the provider and the caregiver. What are, are we listening to each other? Are we making sure that there's a clear understanding about why we're suggesting these things? Um, we're not just coming in and saying, never give in, never, you know, reinforce such and such behavior. It's here's the reasons why we're suggesting that you do this. What do you think about this idea? What do you think about this approach? Do you think it would work for you? Are you willing to try it? If the answer is no, I'm not willing to try it, then we probably shouldn't recommend it because they're not going to do it. Um, so we need to think of a different approach that would be more appealing to the family as a whole. I don't know that we often ask families like would you be willing to do this kind of intervention you know is this something that fits with your family routine at dinner time if it's a dinner time um it might not be possible and uh we don't always give them the opportunity to even you know collaborate on that level of detail 
Yeah, I think those discussions are so powerful. Um, ultimately, is that you can't force anybody. It's, it's, it's the same idea of assent, yeah. is that the family has to really understand the value of what they're engaging in, and it has to fit their priority system. And if it doesn't, you're not going to make any movement. And quite frankly, it's going to be a hindrance to being able to empower the child or the adult that you're helping to service in this model if you don't have everybody supporting the same goals, priorities, and plan. So I think it is really tough. I mean, but we're in a field where, you know, and maybe this is a simple answer, but we're in a field where we have been so focused on being able to have a certain number of practice events and trials to record, to be able to get the data, to be able to move a program on, to be able to call an objective mastered. Does that change when you're looking at more naturalistic approaches? Are you looking at the the service notes and evaluation and analytics slightly different in this model? Even even the outcome measures, are you looking at those differently in this model? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, uh, you know, I can just tell you what we tend to do. Um, and we we don't collect trial by trial data. Um, we do more of a probe kind of approach. Uh, and so once a week, what does this uh, skill look like? Um, it's not as granular. It's certainly not as precise, uh, but it does give us um, data to inform our treatment planning, right? And so at the end of the day, what is the purpose of the data? Why are you collecting data? And the data should be to inform whether or not the interventions you're using are working, um, whether that individual is making progress or not. Um, and I don't think that we need to collect the level of granular data that I think we often do. I think that we can probably uh, collect more, you know, broader probe type data rather than, um, and I think that if you're doing that, it um, doesn't interfere with your interaction, right? And so what I've seen happening is, you know, when you are using a more naturalistic kind of approach, um, you're able to engage and play and, you know, do these kinds of more interactive techniques uh, if you're not, you know, tied down to the data. Uh, That doesn't mean that data isn't critical. It absolutely is. But I think we can probably go a long way in terms of, um, you know, minimizing all of the binders full of data that we sometimes have. Yeah, I think that that's also going to be something that's going to have to shape over time because we, I, I believe, have shaped the insurance industry for specific mm-hmm. expectations of mm-hmm. what they should be getting and what it should yeah. look like and what the yeah. eval. And so it's almost like a re-education of, you know, hold on, we're learning as this time goes on. This is what we're learning. So maybe you can expect some of both, and maybe there's equal value to how you're looking at the analytics of each of these programs. And I think that like, as as we go through this is that it's it's like the field in general, we've taken Mm -hmm. small steps. And as long as we're getting better along the way, better is better. And and that's where we need to be getting. We just need to bring all stakeholders with us. Right. Um, As far as that collaboration goes, one of the one of the things, and I'd love to talk to this in the perspective of adolescent care um, and just understanding, especially as we're looking at priorities and goals and mental health and some of the comorbid conditions that um, have, have become a little bit more, not that they weren't there, but we're becoming far more aware of them mm-hmm. over time, is our approach to treating younger children 
and encouraging more of their empowerment and their control of their own program over time. Are we hoping that this translates, or maybe we have already seen it in some of the data sets, are we hoping this translates to less anxiety, less depression, more uh, social, um, a feeling of control within other environments? Are we are we seeing that more, or is that? So I don't know if we're seeing it more. I certainly hope that we do see it more. Um, I think this is um, probably too new and too early to have those sort of longitudinal data at this point. However. It makes sense, right? It makes sense that uh, if you are being taught in a way that like promotes uh, empowerment and self-direction and choice, uh, that hopefully you do feel more empowered to to voice, you know, concerns if you have them. You know, I think I think those are really important points. I don't know that we ha I don't think we have those data, but I do think what we would want to think about is how can we empower adolescents who are feeling those, you know, anxiety or depressive kinds of symptoms to be able to seek help? And how can we empower the individuals who are working with them to identify early signs and um, even more of a reason why not to push compliance uh, if there's, uh, you know, concern for those kinds of things? And I would, I would also kind of caution to say, I don't know that everybody always realizes that they're engaging in compliance-based training. And I think that mm -hmm. sometimes in the way that goals are written or the way they're they're personally processing them, they don't see that there could be some of the compliance-based teaching inherent in yeah. all their programs. So how does a how does a group start to make that practical Step. I mean, is it is it first just doing kind of an overall evaluation of, you know, level setting? This is where we're at. Or mm -hmm. I could imagine you jump in and start making changes without understanding mm -hmm. what your baseline is. That's going to create some havoc. Um, yeah. What would what would the recommendation be on, you know, how can, you can do some self-awareness, self-evaluation? Yeah, I think as a, as an individual clinician or as a as a team thinking about the clients that you are serving and their individual goals and your individual approach, right? Like, again, going back to that question of who is this goal benefiting? Um, what is the overarching, you know, long-term hope for this intervention plan that I have in place? And how do the strategies that I'm using lead to that long-term hope? Um, even more so, like asking parents, family members, individuals who are receiving treatment themselves, like if they're able to answer, are these the things that are important to you? Are there things that are missing from this overall intervention plan that you would like to see incorporated? There are going to be times where that's not possible, right? So I might want to work on like, you know, acceptance to college and my child's 10. Like that may not be the right thing to work on right now, but even asking that question and then providing some education about why, well, we can't work on that right now because of X, Y, and Z kind of things, right? That opens the door to collaboration and discussion. And I think at the, like, to, in short, to answer your question, I think the way that you start is by asking those questions of yourself as a clinician and also asking those questions of the families that you are working with. Like, are, is what we're doing aligned with your priorities, with your view towards what you want for yourself or for your child and family. Um, 
but and after you ask, you have to listen, right? Um, you have to be open to changing things. Um, if the answers aren't, yes, this is what I want to be doing, or yes, this is, you know, in line with my goals. Yeah, and I think that if we can all get into that and uh, go back to the very beginning of our conversation is that you had stated asking yourself the question, who is this really supporting? Who is this empowering? Who is this mm-hmm. goal for? I think that that probably is a great place, no matter where you're at in, in the journey of treatment and the in the journey of service. It's asking that every single step of the way just yeah. for that reality check of okay, it's easy to start moving in a direction without realizing how I got there. Right. But at least using that gating question each time, yep. I think could be a really good starting point. So and, and as we go through it, I mean, you've obviously put a lot of time and energy in this and you're in a supportive system because you're, you're working within a university system that obviously supports a lot of the collaboration. Where, where are you hoping that the work that you all are doing where, where are you hoping that that goes? I mean, it's, it, it has the opportunity to influence a lot of care, but mm-hmm. what's your utopia as far as, you know, I hope this yeah. goes in this direction soon. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, coming from my, my roots as an ABA therapist, um, I would love to see this kind of work be disseminated and implemented more widely in like your traditional homegrown ABA kinds of agencies, right? Because these are um, often the agencies that are contacting many of the children and families uh, who are receiving services. And so thinking about how we can get these messages and this trait, is this is this a training package that needs to be developed? Is this some sort of guideline that needs to be developed to make sure that there is um, you know, more of an understanding of these kinds of principles. Um, is it something that is being translated and disseminated to verified course sequence directors? Um, is it something that is uh, inherent in the BACB and thinking about what, you know, how can we make changes to the task list? I mean, I think there are so many levels of potential, you know, entry points that could serve to spread this message widely. But I think at the end of the day, probably all of those things need to happen. Um, and it's going to take a lot of time. Um, the field has certainly evolved in the last 20 something years that I've been in it. I imagine it will continue to evolve, which is a really important thing. Um, but all of these, I think, are things that would make me excited to see this, um, you know, this kind of growth and direction. Well, I mean, I would love to see everything that you're that you're talking about and discussing. I'd love to see that continue to progress over time and start to influence um, a lot of the decision makers as far as the organizations that are that are providing the care right now. I've seen it over the last two years have far more of a, uh, I guess, almost like a amplitude and the value that is being put out there in conferences to start looking at all of these pieces. So I know that we're moving in that direction and I think we'll get there. And I think that you'll be a big part of that. And I appreciate Melanie, you coming on to discuss all this today, because I think these are wonderful conversations that as as long as we keep talking about it, is that you are going to see the changes that, that you're working on and that you're researching start to infiltrate the service care model. Well, thank you so much for even uh, making this something that is a topic for your podcast. I think that uh, 
it's so exciting that more people are interested and more people are hearing about this. And um, I'm just happy to be a part of the team who's uh, sharing that message. Oh, well, we appreciate it as well. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week. Thank you.